You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So we're going to be studying James 5, verse 1 through 6, which, uh, as we'll see, describes the pitfalls of wealth. Now, that's not really a great title, I think, for our culture today. I think most people believe that living your life for money and possessions is actually a worthwhile endeavor. But James says just the opposite. He says in verses 1 through 3, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will actually testify against you and eat your flesh like fire, for you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Pretty fiery words from James about this area of living for wealth and materialism. Now, I think what James is saying really fits what we see throughout the Bible, that there is a strong warning against centering your life around obtaining more and more wealth and possessions. For example, we see that wealth slowly numbs our need for God. We talked about early on in the book of James that it is, in a lot of ways, mirroring the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And you see that some of the constructions of of his sentences resemble that of the Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9, we read, Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I go rich... I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm poor, I may steal and thus insult your holy name. I think when most of us pray, we pray, God, please spare me from poverty. But it's sort of counterintuitive to pray that God would rescue us from wealth. And yet we live in a culture today where most people don't have to worry about their basic needs Hardly any of us ever ask the question, I wonder where I'm going to get my next meal. Most of the time we're asking ourselves, what do I want to eat tonight? Or should I continue to eat? And so a lot of times for us, it's really difficult to understand the plight of the poor because we're living in such an affluent society. And one of the things that God wants us to do is he wants us to rely on him for our basic needs. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says that we should pray for our daily bread. But that's a little bit difficult when you're faced with praying for your daily bread and yet you own the bakery. You know, it's like we live in a culture now where we really have all of our needs met. Revelation 3, verse 15 through 17 says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea. And these guys, they were incredibly wealthy. And one of the critiques that Jesus has is that their wealth had blinded them from their spiritual need. Wealth has this ability to take this gnawing spiritual hunger that we have and turn it into a low rumble that we can barely notice. 
And that's why we see authors like John Steinbeck say things like this, a strange species we are. We can stand anything that God and nature can throw at us, save only plenty. If I wanted to destroy a nation, I would give it too much, and I would have it on its knees, miserable, greedy, and sick. The second thing is, when you look at having too much, having more doesn't actually quench our materialistic thirst. Oftentimes, it promotes more and more desire. A lot of times, we feel that initial euphoric rush whenever we open up the package of our new device, or we feel that sense of excitement whenever we're handing the sales associate our credit card to buy that new pair of shoes. And we feel that sense of excitement for a short period of time, but we, we know what's coming next, which is that letdown, that feeling that this isn't going to last. And I think the troubling thing is that when we try to center our lives around possessing more things and having more money, that when we live our lives around that, it's ultimately not satisfying. The famous philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal describes that human beings have within them this infinite abyss, this hole that only really God can fill. And so we can try to stuff anything we want in there, and yet we're never going to fully feel satisfied. And a lot of times what you see are people who are hopelessly addicted to materialism, where they're chasing after more, hoping that it will finally satisfy them, and yet it creates even more hunger. The third thing is wealth warps our wants into needs. I remember years ago I was with my son Julius, who was four years old at the time, and I was visiting a friend of mine, and he, he was uh, with his kids. So our kids were sort of running around as me and my friend were sort of talking, and I observed that my son Julius walked up to his daughter, who was two years old at the time, and basically strong-armed her for her toys. And of course, you know, she started crying and came up to us, and with tears in her eyes was like, he took my toy. And of course, my son runs up with a toy in his hand, and, you know, he's justifying himself. He's like, I need this. This is mine. I need this. And my friend's five-year-old son ran up, and he said, no, Julius, you don't need this. You want this. <laughs> and my son Julius looked at me, you know, with a sad, sad look in his face, and I said, it's a pretty good point. You know, a lot of times we have taken our wants and have turned them into our needs. You know, I need that new device. I need that new luxury item. I need this new pair of shoes. And what we really mean is we want those things. I mean, if you really boil down our needs to a basic level, I mean, it would be food, shelter, clothing, basic transportation, and anything beyond that really falls into the category of our wants. And yet we live in a society where we're so affluent that we have tricked ourselves into thinking that the things that we want are actually things that we need in life. Also, wealth threatens to hijack the security that we place in Christ. Think about what Proverbs 18 verse 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. You know, some of us might be judgmental of people who flaunt their wealth. 
We look at somebody and scoff at them when they spend thousands of dollars on a new watch or a new luxury car. Because what we like to do is we like to stockpile our money. We like to invest in our future to make sure that we have financial security. And yet the Bible says that there's no such thing as financial security. There's only eternal security. The other thing is having too much can actually create anxiety. Think about what Proverbs 15 verse 16 says. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, draws a straight line from having too much to the kind of anxiety that eats away at us. He says in verses 31 through 33, he says, So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all that you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. And so, as we accumulate more and more stuff, it actually consumes our attention. You know, some of us have family that own properties in various places. And far from that giving them more freedom, they're actually tied to their properties, maintaining them. You know, think about people who have these specialized hobbies like restoring classic cars. I mean, they spend all of their time trying to restore this car, taking them away from things that really matter. And so sometimes our hobbies and these possessions that we accumulate actually suck away our attention to think from the things that really matter. Really, the things that we own may eventually own us. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says, what will happen to the affluent person or society that does not rectify its materialism? The basic laws of physics give us the answer. He says, the greater the mass, the greater the hold that mass exerts. This explains why the largest planets are capable of holding so many satellites in its orbit. Similarly, the more things we own, the greater the total mass. The more they grip us, hold us, set us in orbit around them. Finally, like a black hole, a gargantuan cosmic vacuum cleaner, they mercilessly suck us into themselves until we become indistinguishable from our things, surrendering ourselves to the inhumane gods we have idolized. I think that's really a great observation of the kind of um, result that takes place when somebody gives their life to materialistic lust. Number six, our wealth can't purchase for us what we need most. Think about Proverbs 11, verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Or Psalm 49, verse 5 through 9. Why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. It doesn't matter how much wealth you hoard in this life. When you reach the end of your life, there is nothing that you can give or pay to redeem your life, according to the Bible. Again, Alcorn says, The only thing worth buying cannot be bought with money. 
God's Son bought us our salvation and freely gives himself to all who seek him. Money cannot buy salvation and it cannot buy rescue from judgment. In Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus says, What will it benefit a man if he gains the entire world and forfeits his own soul? Wouldn't that be a shame? If you gave your entire life to accumulating as much money and as many possessions and financial security in your life and yet failed to secure eternal life. The Bible says there's nothing that you can do in this life to ever purchase eternal life. That we stand in a position where we are in debt to God. But God gave his most valued possession, his own son Jesus, to come and die for us and purchase eternal life. And the Bible goes on to say that if we just ask God, that he will give it to us generously, that he will give us not only forgiveness and a relationship with him, but eternal life. And so that's an option that all of us have. You might be here wondering, what's the Bible all about? Well, there's, the Bible says a lot of things, but the one thing that the Bible really emphasizes is that God wants a relationship with you. And the thing is, he's not going to impose that upon you. In order to receive eternal life, you have to ask him for it. Look at what he says in the rest of uh, this passage here. James says in verses 4 through 6, he says, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. And you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not even opposing you. So there are a few things that he says here as he talks about how the rich were using their wealth to exploit the poor. First of all, he says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So it's likely that James's audience, the rich people anyway, were using their wealth to try to put their thumbs on the scale of justice. That they were using their wealth either to try to um, hire, you know, judges through bribery. Or that they were using their status in society to try to oppress the poor. And we see that a lot, even today. I mean, when you look at human history, people throughout the millennia have lived by the golden rule. That is, whoever has the gold makes the rules. I mean, just recently I saw a story where this famous wealthy celebrity used her position and her money to try to bribe a federal institution to try to get her daughter into a college. And she ended up serving 14 days in federal prison. 14 days. You think to yourself, if somebody, a poor person, didn't have access to that kind of wealth, Would they have the kind of legal representation she did? If she didn't get the kind of media coverage that she did, uh, would she have gotten a just trial? And so when we look at the wealthy, even in our own culture today, they get the kind of advantages that those who are impoverished are, are unable to get. 
The other thing that James says, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your, mowed your fields are crying out against you. So apparently what was happening is these laborers would come in, they would negotiate the amount of money that they would get at the end of the day, and either they were withholding their wages by either delaying payment or they were just withholding it and just not giving it to them. This word in Greek, you fail to pay, um, literally means to steal or to defraud. So it wasn't like they were just sort of holding back the pay. These people were never going to see it. And so the wealthy were actually taking money away from those who are poor. He also says in James 5, verse 5, you have lived in luxury on earth and self-indulgence. The thing is, James isn't just critiquing them for living in luxury and self-indulgence. It's that they were doing so while neglecting the needs of the poor. Think about Jesus's parable in Luke chapter 16, where he talks about this rich man who is living right next to this person who is begging named Lazarus. Each day he would come out of his house and turn a blind eye to Lazarus and his plight. And by giving this parable, Jesus was saying this rich man was, was guilty not because he was mistreating or oppressing Lazarus. It was that he was simply ignoring Lazarus' needs. Again, we see throughout the Bible that God opposes materialism for a variety of different reasons, but most of all because it may lead to partiality and mistreatment of the poor. Look at Proverbs 19, verse 7. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do all of his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they're gone. I remember years ago where, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with MC Hammer, but I grew up in the 90s, and he had that hit record, You Can't Touch This, right? He made $40 million off of that record in like the 90s. So I don't even know what that would mean in today's dollars. And yet, within five years, he was bankrupt. One of the things that was interesting is they interviewed him about 10 years later, and they went back to his old mansion that was abandoned. And one of the things that he was saying was that it was amazing when I made my $40 million, all these people were showing up to my place. People who were claiming to be friends from the neighborhood that I don't even remember. These family members who are, who are asking for handouts. But the moment that I filed for bankruptcy, they all vanished. They were all gone. And that's the way it is with the poor. The poor have nobody, unlike the rich. The second thing is that materialism leads to oppression of the poor. Look at all of the Proverbs that talk about how God opposes and abhors mistreatment of the poor. He says in Proverbs 14, verse 31, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. A poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. Proverbs 13, verse 23. 
A poor man pleads for mercy, but a rich man answers harshly. Proverbs 18, verse 23. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Proverbs 22, verse 7. And then finally, do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their cause and will plunder those who plunder them. Proverbs 22, verse 22 and 23. So you're looking at this and you're, you're probably thinking to yourself, I'm not oppressing the, the poor people that I encounter. I don't show them contempt. Well, one of the things you need to consider is that the oppression of the poor that, that takes place in many of the developing countries throughout the world is driven on the American consumerism that demands the lowest prices for consumer goods. And so even though we aren't directly opposing the poor and mistreating them, it's our materialistic lust that inevitably mistreats the poor throughout the world. I actually had a first-hand encounter with this. I remember driving 30 minutes out of Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh. And just outside the city, there, it's a very rural area. And as I was driving down this dirt road, there were, along this road, dozens of textile factories. And there were these cargo trucks carrying dozens of Cambodian people sandwiched in there like, like sardines, like cattle, going to these textile factories to produce the clothes that we wear. And so we need to let that sink in, that even though we may feel like our hands are clean, it's actually our materialistic thirst here in our culture that drives this, this oppression of the poor throughout the world. The unfairness. Thirdly, God tells us that we shouldn't turn away when we see their plight. Again, Proverbs 21 verse 13 says, If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and will not be answered. And the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So who are these wicked people in the Proverbs that he's talking about? Is it the ones who are directly oppressing the poor? In this case, it's the ones who simply turn a blind eye to their need and their plight. It's the people who are sitting at their evening dinner and they turn on the news and they see people starving and they turn it off because it's a little bit unsavory as they eat their dinner. Proverbs 19 verse 17 says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. This actually mirrors what Jesus says in Matthew 25 where he says, to his disciples, he says, When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was without clothing, you gave me clothes. And his disciples came to him and said, Lord, when did we do these things? And he said, When you did this to the least one of my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus views our altruism to the poor, our sacrificial giving and generosity to the poor as an extension of our treatment to him. That's how much he identifies with the poor throughout the world. 
In fact, Jesus, when he came to earth, God incarnate came as a poor person and lived among the poor. Not only that, God promises that when we invest in eternal things, when we give generously, that God says that he will take what we've given and it will yield a hundred times more in the next life. God's a generous God. And so our giving isn't just sacrificial. It's actually a good investment because we can't outgive God. Now, I know what you're saying to yourself. You're thinking, okay, those wealthy people, I mean, they regularly mistreat the poor. I mean, you look at me, though. I'm like a poor college person. I don't have any money. I work at Speedway. I mean, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, I'm not making a lot of money. I eat packages of ramen noodles for dinner. And so when you think about the rich, you think about the millionaires, right? You think about the billionaires in our, culture, in our country. And yet we have to kind of gain a little bit of perspective because, yes, relative to the ultra-wealthy in our, in our country, we may feel like we're poor, but we also have to sort of think about it on a global scale. In 2017, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that the median household income was $59,000 for a family. And so if you take that and you sort of plot that on a global scale, if you made $59,000 as your household income, where does that place you amongst the rest of the world? Turns out you represent the top 1% richest people on earth if you made that much money. If you made the median income in America. That's pretty shocking to a lot of us because we feel like $59,000, I mean, that's not a lot of money. Once you have a career, especially if you've spent a fortune on your, your undergraduate degree, that's the least that you, you can expect for, for an income. And yet, that catapults you into the top 1% richest group of people in the world. Now, in 2015, a family of four stands right on the razor's edge of poverty at $24,850. And so again, let's try to plot that on a global scale. You would still be within the top 2% richest people of the world. If you made $24,000 as a household in a family of four, that's not a lot of money. Again, to kind of give us an understanding of what this would look like, um, if you earn $24,000 um, in one year, it would take the average laborer in Ghana 155 years to earn the same amount. Uh, if you were making $24,000, you would earn enough to buy a can of Coca-Cola in three minutes, whereas it would take a laborer in Zimbabwe an entire hour just to earn the same amount. With the monthly salary that you would get at $24,000 a year, 
you could pay the monthly salary of 152 doctors in Malawi. So, I mean, we, we sort of have to understand that when we think of ourselves as poor, it's sort of relative to the most affluent people in the world. Not really compared to the rest of the world where most people live on a fraction of what we earn. In fact, the economist Jeffrey Sachs claims that the international poverty line stands at around $1 a day. I think the most adjusted number is about $1.90. And that is accounting for what's called purchasing power parity. In other words, the same dollar buys the same pound of rice in Costa Rica as it does in the United States. And this is true. I mean, I remember talking to my translator in Cambodia as I was teaching over there. And I asked him, I said, so what did you do before you were translating? And he said, oh, I used to do construction. And I said, so how much would you earn a day? And he said, about a dollar a day. And he said, the thing is, if you got injured on the job, I mean, there was no health insurance. There was no short-term or long-term disability or any benefits that most American workers get. I said, so how much are you earning now? He's like $10 a day as a translator. And by their standards, he was among the wealthiest of his country. And so we, we need to sort of open up our eyes to see how the rest of the world is living. <clears throat> now, we have to ask ourselves, what is the way forward? I think, first of all, we need to invest in things that have eternal value. We talked about this last week. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, verse 21. One way to interpret this is that when you look at the things that you invest in, your time, your money, your resources, that is actually indicative of what matters to you, what is close to your heart. But maybe another way to look at this is that Whatever you invest in, there your heart will be also. Whenever you invest money into something, whenever you invest time into something, whenever you invest your heart into something, it starts to matter. And so maybe some of us feel admittedly that our heart has grown cold to the poor and to the needs throughout the world. Maybe the thing to do is to start investing in those people and as you do so, your heart will actually start to grow warm and sensitive to the kind of situation that they face. Randy Alcorn says, show me your checkbook your, and your credit card statement and I'll show you where your heart is. It's indicative of what we care about. Secondly, learn to live simply. I think one of the the things that characterizes our fellowship and ethos that I really love about our church is the fact that the people here, especially a lot of the wealthy people in our fellowship, live way below their means in order to give more generously. And one of the things that I really admire too is that a lot of the staff that work here work, I think, uh, on very... Uh, limited wages, fair wages, but, you know, that they're not living for money. I remember my uh, spiritual mentor, when I first met him, he was driving around this 15-year-old Honda Civic that had like 150,000 miles on it. 
And I remember seeing him for the first time because we were on 16th Avenue. And he pulled up on the, to the driveway and his muffler was loose. So it was like basically dragging on the ground as he went up the, the driveway. He had a special name for it. He called it X-Blue. I don't know why he called his car that. But I remember just looking at him and thinking, this is so bizarre. Why, why is the senior pastor of this church driving this crappy car? And I remember as I started to like get to know him, we would go out to get lunch. I'd jump in his car and I would just scoff. I'd be like, your car is so crappy. Why do you drive this thing around? And he'd be like, oh man, it's awesome. He's like, look at it. He's got, he's like, it's got air conditioning. It's got a CD player. It eventually gets to 75 miles per hour. And, you know, we would do sort of this song and dance where, I, you know, every time I jump in there, I just start scoffing at it. And he would just go through the list of great qualities that his car had. And at one point, his car actually sprung a gas leak. And I remember going into his car one time when we were out going to go get lunch, and the fumes were so intoxicating that I was starting to get a headache. And the reason that he kept his car was because he had calculated that even though he had a gas leak, he was still getting about 32 miles to the gallon. And so he decided to ride it out, even though his car was like a rolling Molotov cocktail. <laughs> he went on to drive that car for five more years. One of the things I really loved about it, though, was, first of all, I knew that he wasn't doing this for money. That he wasn't living his life for God or, or leading this church because he, he wanted more money. But the second thing is, I learned how to live simply from him. It was funny, you know, we'd watch a football game and we'd watch the ads and he would just sort of sneer and, and just laugh every time an ad would come on. He'd be like, so you mean to tell me that, that that daughter now loves her dad because he bought her a Subaru? Or he'd be like, so you're telling me if I wear that specific type of deodorant, women are going to start thinking I'm hot? And uh, we would just laugh together. But, you know, one of the things that I really loved about it was that he never made simple living seem like it was this sacrificial or dour thing. But it was fun and it was countercultural. But more importantly, it helped me realize that the way forward is to not only live simply, but to live generously. I remember when I first came around, one of the real struggles I had was materialism. And I mentioned last week where, on the one hand, I wanted to live all out for God, but at the same time, I also wanted to become wealthy. And when I finally became convinced that living for God was more important than living for wealth, one of the things I found out was that, you know, I had a lot of debt, and I thought to myself, I'm not sure that I want to give because I, I have all this debt that I need to take care of. And so I remember talking to somebody, an older Christian, and saying, so what should I do? I want to give generously, but I have all this debt. And this older Christian told me, I think what you should do is you should give even a little amount. Because from God's standpoint, it doesn't matter how much you give. It matters that you start this practice of giving. Because he'll slowly cause you to become more and more generous as the years go by. And so I decided to take a step of faith. I decided to start giving. And what happened was really interesting is that 
God actually started to revolutionize my thinking. As I started giving, my heart grew more and more generous, and I actually started to see my money as something that God gave me as a stewardship instead of my money being my own. And so you might be here, you might be thinking, okay, I've got all of this debt. I don't have that much money. How am I going to start giving? And I think God's answer is start small. But as you do so, God is going to start transforming your heart. Okay, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19 says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives all, uh, us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and, gener- and generosity to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they will experience true life. So that's the way forward. You know, God's not saying that it's wrong or that it's immoral to be wealthy. He tells us if you're wealthy, if you have a lot of money, the way forward is to give generously. You shouldn't feel guilty that you have a lot of resources. God has given that to you for a reason, so that you can provide for the needs of those who are in want. Yeah, Lord, I feel uh, really grateful to be in a fellowship where... The needs of the poor are something that we talk about, something that we take seriously. I'm grateful that when we look at our budget and our fellowship, that over a third of what uh, we take in goes to relief and development work throughout the world and even here in our own city. And um, I pray that we would never lose that ethic. I pray that we would be a a church that is a church that, that loves the poor that is sensitive to the needs of the poor and that shows extreme generosity to the poor. And um, I, I thank you that you have placed us in this country where we are affluent and we have these opportunities that most people do not have throughout the world. But I pray that we wouldn't view this as an entitlement but a privilege that you've given us so that we can be more generous to those who don't have as much. And I pray finally for those of us, Lord, who are chasing after financial security or who are living for money and possessions and realize that it's a dead end, I pray that they would come to the conclusion that the only thing worthwhile in this life is to obtain eternal security that can only come through Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone who's thinking about that, that they would continue to investigate you further and just uh, move forward in their spiritual journey. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.